Well, good morning, church. Oh, it is. It is a, it's a good morning to be together. We're excited to jump into the Word this morning. Uh, it was great having Ron Friesen fill in for me. Last Sunday I was at a hockey tournament, and so I was very thankful for, for Ronnie. And uh, he's, he's, a good, he's a good brother. Um, one of the reasons I asked him is because when I met him for the first time, I asked him, I said, hey, are you an ex-pro football player? And, uh, and I was really, I was like, oh, man, this guy's the real deal. So, yeah, he, he loves filling in, and he loves Greendale, and so it's such a joy to have him uh, here. When I asked him what he, if he would uh, continue on in the Mark series, I, and he's like, well, what's your next passage? And I said, well, it's about the abomination of desolation. Would you like to take that one? He says, nah, I'll speak out of Philippians. I'm good. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, thanks. Uh, but yeah, this morning we are in Mark. We're still in chapter 13, and uh, we are going to be in verses 14 uh, to 23. And it's a, it's a unique text. Uh, but it's, it is, it's, it's very rich, it's very full, and so we're going to take some time to, to look at it this morning. Um, for a lot of us, we probably remember a time in our lives uh, before we had kind of cell phone GPSs uh, when navigating, you know, new areas and streets and stuff was just paper maps and handwritten directions, and the voice of, you know, Siri or your GPS was your, your co-pilot, your navigator in the seat next to you. Um, you, you really had to pay attention in that time frame because you could easily miss a street, you could easily miss a landmark, <clears throat> and find yourself, you know, way off trajectory and lost. Uh, and this day and age, it's hard to get lost because, you, you know, we can just Google it. You know, Siri, how do I get to wherever it is? But oftentimes for me, I would, before, I, you know, I'm old enough, I didn't, I didn't learn to drive with GPS and stuff like that. So I would drive by feel, you know what I mean? I'd be like, I think where I need to go is this direction. Uh, so, you know, you end up exploring stuff by default doing that. But often when we would give directions to friends or family, I wouldn't really know all of the detailed street names, but I would use landmarks, you know? I'd say, when you see the golden arches, you know, turn, turn right at that next light or whatever. Um, and I remember when I started driving, we had just moved to Greenville, South Carolina, and there's a road that we lived on or lived by, and it was called East North Street. And this road would, it was so confusing because it would change its name of the road like three different times without ever like taking a turn. And so you'd go through an intersection and it would be a totally different road name. Then you drive through another intersection, and it would change names again. And then you would drive, you know, 10 more blocks, and then it would return back to the original road name. And not all the roads are straight either. It's just they kind of, like, do all kinds of wacky stuff. And, um, and there's a reason for it in the 19th century when they were doing city planning and stuff like that. It's actually really interesting historically why they did all that. You can Google that if you want. But... If you like structure and grids and, you know, like just, you know, the crosshatch of, you know, really well, well laid out city kind of thing, you would not enjoy driving in Greenville, South Carolina. And so when, when I was growing up, I really had to pay attention to learn where, was, where I was going. I had to look for the landmarks, you know. And the reason I mention this is because 
in this passage of, of Scripture that we're diving into, Jesus is giving his disciples some directions. He's giving them some, some landmarks, if you will, to look for, some signs that they need to look for, and when they see it, what they need to do. And uh, uh, before we jump there, and if you just kind of go back to verse 7, we get this, this phrase from Jesus. He says, and when you hear, he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. He said, this must take place, but it's not the end. And what we'll find in, in, in verse 14, we, we, we see a similar statement. And it's, it's going to say, instead of when you hear, he's going to say, when you see. And he gives him a command. He says, when you see you must flee. When you see it, flee it. Take that right turn out of town when you see that landmark, that sign, whatever it might be, because if you don't, there's going to be chaos and destruction, you know, past that. And so, he's telling the disciples what they need to be on the lookout for, and we want to look how this is meaningful us, meaningful for us today. So, if you have your Bible uh, you can open up to Mark if you're not already there, and we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to go to 20, and then we'll pick up the rest after we kind of unpack that. And this is what the Word of God says. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the house not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it, might, that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut the days short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect... Whom he chose, he shortened the days. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you, God, that you instruct, that you guide. Lord, that you give us what we need, Lord, to follow after you and walk in obedience. Lord, I pray that you would use this word, God, to encourage us, to help us understand you more. Lord, to, to walk more faithfully in your way. God, to be more readily to obey, Lord, to worship more passionately, God, to love more fiercely, Lord, to give of ourselves to your kingdom uh, just more willingly, Lord, and with a joy and excitement, God, that comes with following you. And so, Lord, lead us in your word this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us clarity and understanding. Uh, thank you that you are God who makes himself known, and Lord, that we have access to you. And so we just pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So, if you've spent time in Scripture, you probably have come across this phrase, or if you, you know, watch YouTube in the last, like, six months, um, this word, abomination of desolation, it, it's, a, it's a standout word. A lot of people connect it to what we call eschatology, which is kind of like people's viewpoint or understanding of what we call end times when Jesus will return or some of the, the things leading up to that. And this, this phrase that Jesus is using is intentional. He wants his, his disciples to grab onto a particular meaning 
so that they can know and be ready to be obedient in whatever uh, situation they find themselves in. This phrase is originally found in the Old Testament, abomination of desolation. We, we see it in Daniel. Uh, one instance is in Daniel 11.31. It says this. It says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So it's not the exact, but the, the language is, is very similar. And so what we find Jesus speaking about it, and he speaks about it in here specifically in Mark, but he also speaks about it in, in Matthew as well, in, in Matthew's account of the, of, uh, the gospel. Often, uh, abomination of desolation is also uh, associated with a few other New Testament terminologies that we see. Paul writes about it in, in 2 Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness, or John uses the word antichrist uh, quite frequently. And so people often connect these things. But there's, there's, there's a sense of that it's kind of cryptic. We're like, what is, what is Jesus really getting at here? Um, there is some ambiguity. It's a bit vague and can be hard to understand because we even have this parenthetical statement that says, let the reader understand, as there's, there's something that we need to grab onto. There's, it's not just at face value. And so, you know, there's some speculation about what it means, but I think in the context we can, we can unpack it and using uh, history as well. Some, some scholars think that they use this kind of cryptic language as somewhat of a code, because if you were a Christian in the first century, uh, after Jesus's, um, after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, there's persecution, there was things going on, and so they would use maybe this, this language of abomination of desolation, they, they put it in, in, in the, the letter here to the churches uh, and to the, the people that are reading it so that maybe they wouldn't dis- detect like sensitive information that this would, they would understand and wouldn't get in trouble because it was coded. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but when we look at the text and this word abomination of a desolation, we're just going to break down the two words, abomination and desolation. Abomination, it comes from, it has, it, it's, it has Hebrew uh, origin, but the, the Greek that would have been written in the New Testament, it means something like a foul thing, a detestable thing. It's, you know, abominable. Um, it's something that's abhorrent or detestable, uh, particularly to, to God and his people. And so there's this, there's this connection to, to worship and, and, and offense that comes from improper or illegitimate worship. And so it's this detestable thing. That's kind of the first half of it. The second portion is, is desolation. And again, connecting it back to the Hebrew word that we read in, in Daniel there, um, the word is uh, shamam, and it means to destroy or lay waste or to devastate or to be astonished by something that's so horrible that it leaves a person speechless. And so when you, can, you can think maybe like when you see broadcasts of, um, you know, current events that show the, the desolation of war, right, and how it's displacing people and you might get an image of, of burned down buildings and, you know, people in the street and you might be left speechless, like this is a terrible thing that's happening. The, the Greek word is, is very uh, consistent with the Hebrew word. 
um, and it means the same thing, to, to make desolate. And so when we kind of look at what the Bible talks about in the context of Daniel and, and what the words mean, we, we get this sense that it involves some kind of destroying or desecration, leaving uh, something in such a horrible condition that the onlookers are left speechless. Like, how could this be? There's like no words to really, you know, pour out to really give meaning or, or emotion to what they're seeing. And so, this, we kind of translate it as like this appalling sacrilege. Like something's happened within, the, the, within, you know, well, we'll find out here, within the temple that just leaves people speechless. Like, how could this be? And so, Jesus is making this connection to Daniel and his prophecy regarding uh, uh, the chapter 11, verse 31 that we read about that rulers coming in, these forces coming in, and they'll do something within the temple that are going to stop the, the worship of God from his people, and that there's going to be something there in God's place that's going to be kind of attempting to usurp God's uh, position of, of worship. And something like that did happen in history. In 168 BC, uh, there was a, in this time in Israel's history, there was a ruler uh, named Antiochus IV of Epiphanes, and he came in with his forces, and he desecrated the temple by setting up some kind of altar or idol or something like that, dedicated to uh, his god Zeus, and he put it on top of the altar of burnt offerings within the temple, and and there he sacrificed a pig uh, to his false god. And in the mind of the, to the Jew, uh, pigs were unclean, and so to make a sacrifice in the Lord's temple to a false god with these things, like, they were left speechless. This was, this, in their mind, they would have been like, it, you, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, ripping their clothes, sackcloth, you know, or, and ashes on their head. They're, you know, this would have been just such a, a horrific event for them because of how they understand the holiness of God and what the temple meant. And in that time, Antiochus also made the practice of Judaism a capital offense. And so here we see the end of, of worship and this, this desolation of God's temple. And so it was natural for people to think this is the prophecy of Daniel being fulfilled. Well, something happened uh, in Israel's history. The, the, the Jews, they were so worked up about this that they began a revolt. And because this was so detestable to them, and, and you might have heard this term, the Maccabean revolt that happened in 164, and essentially against all odds, they pushed out Antiochus and they rededicated the temple and they reestablished worship within the temple. And so what does that part of history have to do with what Jesus is saying in the first century, you know, about 200 years later or 150 years later? People would have connected Jesus' word to that event in history. And when we, and we think about it, like sometimes in Scripture when you think about prophecy, there's like, a, there's like an, almost like you can see like an ongoing fulfillment. And so the words of Daniel definitely could be like were fulfilled in a sense in uh, 168 B.C. when Antiochus came and desecrated the temple. But there's also a further fulfillment in 70 AD when Titus came in uh, with the Romans and destroyed the temple. 
And sometimes you can think about it as like, the, if you imagine a mountain range, which it probably isn't hard for us to imagine, because if we just looked outside, we would see it. And you have all these different peaks of the same range. And sometimes we see that almost like history and, and prophecy, we can see it as these mountain peaks, that they're all a part of the same range, and it's happening in different parts of history. And so when when the, when the first century person would have read this word abomination of desolation, there would have been a connecting point. It would have been a loaded statement that they would have understood. And so Jesus is warning his disciples that there will be some kind of appalling sacrilege that is going to signal the destruction of the, of the temple and that it was near and that they needed to flee, that they needed to fly you know, swiftly away from Jerusalem and Judea and it was very imperative. And so this kind of Semitic expression from Daniel that describes the abomination so detestable that it causes the temple to be abandoned, it provokes that, that desolation. And so when they would have heard these words, they would have connected it to their history and to Daniel. But here we, we find something interesting. If you, if you continue to read in the text, it says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. It's linking it to a person. And in the Greek, it's, it, you know, in the technicality of it, it's, the word is masculine and the neuter noun is used and all this stuff. And, um, and that's where they get the translation where he ought not to stand. And so they're linking it to a particular person. And so there's going to be, what Jesus is telling his disciples, that there's going to be someone who is going to be standing where he should not be. And this is an indicator you have to take note. You know, it's confusing. The street signs are always changing, but look for the golden arches. This is what he's kind of saying. He's like, there's going to be a lot happening, but I need you to know that this is the landmark. This is the sign that you need to, you know, get out of Dodge. There's going to be a person, and there's going to be this, this desolation. And Matt gives a bit more insight. Matt, sorry. Matthew gives a bit more insight. You know, we're homies. I know him personally. So, and he says this in 2415, this is his, his kind of reporting of the same events, right? He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, he's defining where he ought not to be is the holy place, right? That's the temple. And so he's saying there's going to be a person in the temple. And so Jesus is giving a clear sign you got to flee. When the unthinkable begins to happen, you need to flee. And it's most likely that Jesus is, is saying is connected to the historic crisis that happened between 66 AD and 70 AD when there was tension with the Romans and the eventual destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the abomination of desolation. This was a word for the first century disciples that this was going to happen in their time and they needed to look for the sign. They needed to flee to the mountains, and, and we know that they did. Because sometimes we take this word and this passage and we, and we wrap it up into eschatology, that Jesus wasn't talking about something that happened in the first century, that he's only talking like future tense. Uh, I mean, he is talking future tense, but beyond the time of the disciples. But here's, here's something that I think is important to, to, un, to think about when we, if we're thinking in that perspective. What good is fleeing if Jesus is returning? Where would you go to hide from his presence? 
Well, they wouldn't need to be safe from anyone because the Lord will come and gather His people. And so we see that there's a, something about the timing in history that is already that will occur within the, the lifespan of the disciples that it's important for them to escape and continue to live on. And so this was Jesus' concern for the people and the preservation of the church because the preaching of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom is imperative. And so this saying of Jesus is linked to that historical moment. And we have this, this parenthetical statement that says, let the reader understand. Jesus didn't say that. That's not his words. That's, a, that's added in by Mark as he's writing this, you know, this gospel so that people will read it. And we read it and we imagine ourselves, we're like, let the reader understand. But in the first century, most people didn't have access to paper like we do. And so they would have had someone reading it out loud. And so it was an instruction to the person reading out loud, let the reader to the congregation give meaning, help understand if there may be a Roman audience and they don't know about Daniel and, and the history or they're, you know, Gentile. And so in the first century, this was an in instruction to that person reading out loud to the congregation. And so this phrase was for the instruction of the people that they would grab onto this saying and know that something was going to happen regarding a person and the temple and would be a sign of great tribulation and for the city of Jerusalem and, and the Judea region. And it's this, when you see it, don't wait, flee. Go. For, for whatever reason, I get this word picture, and I just think of, of Gandalf, like uh, in Casa Doom, if you're familiar with that, and he's fighting the Balrog, and he's like hanging on to the thing, and he's like, and they're just standing there watching him, and he's like, fly, you fools, and they just didn't know to run, like their life was still in danger, and so it's just like this intensity of Jesus, I'm saying, he's like, flee, he's like, fly, he's like, this is imperative. And it's interesting, there's a historian from the 4th century that wrote about the church fleeing. Listen to this, it says, But before the war, the people of the church of Jerusalem were bidden in an oracle. He's referencing, this, they would call this an oracle, the word of Jesus, a prophecy, a prior warning to something. It was bidden in an oracle given by revelation to men worthy of it to depart from the city and dwell in a city of Pera called Pella. To it, those who believed in Christ migrated from Jerusalem. Once the holy men had completely left, in the, in, uh, left the Jews in all of Judea, the justice of God at last overtook them since they had committed such transgressions against Christ and his apostles. Divine justice completely blotted out that impious generation from among men. And that's from Ecclesiastical History, um, Volume 3, by uh, the historian, I don't even know how to say his name. Thank you. There you go. And so here, here's the tension, and I think it was important for us to grab as, as modern readers, is that Jesus wasn't, I don't think, particularly concerned about knowing the future. It was about faithfully following his instruction. It's about faithfully following the gospel. Jesus' words to flee allowed the gospel message to continue on. Because imagine... Imagine if the disciples disobeyed. What if they didn't take Jesus' words seriously and they didn't flee? Would Christianity have ended right there? Like, would the gospel message have ended in, you know, in 70 AD? 
I mean, I don't think you can thwart God's plans, but I think this is how he continued it on. And so they took Jesus' word seriously and they obeyed. And so the gospel wasn't silenced then and there. And so we find ourselves get here, gathered 2,000 years later, telling the, the amazing and wonderful story of Jesus that he lived, died, and rose again for the justification and the redemption of his people because people heard his words and obeyed. And for me, it raises this question, you know, as I wrestle with like, okay, if this is an event that happened in 70 AD, like, why, how does this matter to me? And I think it begs the question of what do we cling to? Because there's a challenge here, and the challenge is to obey. When things are really beckoning us, beckoning us to stay, because in the, in the, in the Jewish mind, they would, they would never have wanted to abandon the temple. They would rather die. And so you have all of these, these first century believers, predominantly Jewish, they're looking for this sign. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to just leave the temple. They wouldn't. That's the heart of Jerusalem. That's the heart of, of their identity for the most part. But Jesus is now changing their identity, saying the temple is going to be destroyed. You're going to relate to God no longer through man-made things. You're going to relate to God through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his resurrection. But there's going to be things beckoning you to, to put that off, to just stay a little longer. The temple was everything, and to abandon it was unthinkable. And I think often in our lives, we wrestle with moments like these where we can't imagine fleeing from certain things because maybe it's a cultural norm or it's the thing that we've always done. And I don't, and I don't mean in a legalistic sense, like, you know, you, but I think about, like, media. I think about money. I think about relationships. I think about all of the things that we have in our lives that often kind of become this norm, but it may be a warning sign for us to flee so we don't get ensnared into things that will ultimately trap us and starve us out of our obedience to God. Because the temple wasn't like a bad thing, but Jesus was commanding and calling his disciples to obey and do something different. And I think in our lives, we, we wrestle with decisions like that. You know, Money is a great example. Money is a great tool. It's not inherently evil. We can get ensnared by it. And there might be points in our lives where, you know, we say no to the raise or the, the job promotion because it will require too much of our time and threaten how we take care of our family or, or our obedience to God. And we hold those things in tension and we have to discern the signs and be watchful. And so then when the point comes that we choose obedience over comfort or over cultural norms or what we've always done. Because I think the reality is that if, if the danger was really observable, we would probably flee without command, right? It's like, the house is on fire, run away. But there might be other warning signs. The, 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 the wiring's faulty. You know, the, there's a gas leak. You're not observant to it yet, but this thing's going to blow. And so there is a need for, for instruction, and there's a need for discernment to walk in the way of Jesus. And so there's, this is a, about a point in history where Jesus is given instructions when to flee. And part of this is, is God's mercy in the midst of calamity, 
right? There's a mercy of God being shown here when he says he's going to shorten the days because he, he lists what's going to be like. I mean, we're talking about a siege. There's going to be armies surrounding Jerusalem. There's going to be starvation. There's going to be just all kinds of chaos. There's, it's, going to, I, it's, it's hard for us to imagine what that's like because we've never, I mean, I don't think anyone here has lived in a position like that. Maybe some of our ancestors, you know, who have who fled from persecution and different things like that got a taste of it, but this was something out of the norm. It was, ter- it was a terrible time in history of what was going on in the city. And so God is saying, flee, and he's also telling them to pray, to pray for the people. We get this insight into, into God's mercy and his concern. And I think one of the things here, too, is that we don't always see how God is working in the difficulties. And I think it's unwise to think he's not there before we get the full story because we know he's present, but we don't always see how he's working. And so sometimes living faithfully and walking in obedience means waiting on the Lord and trusting in him when we can't see the scope of what he's doing. Right? I mean, I'm sure many of us could tell a story where it's just like, this was such a hard time in my life and I didn't know how God was working, but when I came out, out on the other side, I was like, that's where God was. He gave me that grace that I needed to, to make it through. And then the reality is, is that everyone here is waiting on God for something. If I asked you, like, in your prayer life, in your relationships, in, in, you know, in your walk with God, Every person here is waiting on God for something. And my encouragement would be is just don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Keep praying because we don't, we don't always see how he's working. I imagine the people in this situation, they didn't understand how God was shortening the days. And sometimes we, we just we don't get that glimpse, and so we don't want to just cast judgment that God's not doing what he's supposed to do. We need to wait on him and continue and not lose heart. Something else we see is that Jesus doesn't lament the destruction of the temple, and we, we see his deeper concern for the people. And so this foretelling is, is prophetic for the first century, but it also finds, I think, further, fami- further fulfillment in another point in time. Some view this as a prototype of what the last days will be like. Some view, you know, say that that Jesus wasn't talking about the first century, but I think in context, we, it, it absolutely is. And we can't ignore that, nor the, the message to, the, to all Christ followers. And it's not clear how this could eschatologically, eschatologically play out in end times, but the point still remains is this, is to be watchful, is to be on guard, and be faithful today. Not for the future, but for today. And so this foreknowledge is to forearm us for faithful following and, and to walk with Christ. And, and these warnings are good for us. John Piper said this. He says, Biblical warnings are one of the means God uses to preserve his people to the end in joy of faith and in strength of assurance. And I just thought that was such a fitting word to remind us that, you know, these warnings, they feel heavy at times. It's like, hey, let's, you know, indestructible joy. Thanks, Ron. And it's like, desolation of, you know, abomination of desolation. It feels heavy. It's like, oh, man. But in these warnings, it is to give us joy and strength of assurance that Jesus is with us. He, he's not absent. He knows what's going on. And so, and then finally, in closing here, we have this, this little last piece of, of warning. He says, and then if anyone says to you, look, 
here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. This is another example for the need for discerning. Because there, in that time, but also in our time as well, there will be people who are trying to confuse and lay claim to Jesus' authority and power to keep the disciples distracted. They're supposed to flee, right? Jesus is giving them this forewarning. He says, when you see this, flee. But if you have a false Christ coming around doing signs and miracles, and you say, hey, you don't need to flee. Like, stay here. You have now this tension of this, like, how are you to obey him if you're being led in a different direction? Because not only will they be distracting the disciples, that they're going to come with the legitimate displays of power, right? There's going to be signs and wonders, and they're going to want to keep people clinging to certain things that will distract them from obedience. There will be things that distract us, too, from sharing the gospel, from being obedient to walking in faith, to following out Jesus' command. And the, the, the difficulty is that it will come in the guise of spirituality, power, and more. But Jesus is saying we can discern it, so there will be a way to know, and it will be probably most likely de- devoid of the things of Jesus' words. When one uh, commentator said it like this, the true Messiah is reluctant to perform signs and wonders so as not to coerce people's allegiance. False prophets, by contrast, exploit every means to gain a following as they have since the, the beginning of Israel's history. And a quick reference to that, Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4, it says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you sign and, or a wonder... And the sign of wonder that he tells you comes to pass. So he's saying there's legitimate power there. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Right? So you can see that tension. Jesus is saying, hold fast to my words. Lean in, follow me, because I know the pathway for you. Just focus on that obedience, and it's going to take you where you need to go. But there's going to be distractions of people with legitimate power saying, hey, let's do something different. Let's do something different. And they might have an encouraging word for you. They might actually, like, you know, pray healing over you. They might be able to do things you've never seen before. But there's going to be something out of sync with the person of Jesus and his words. And that's the indicator. And that's why we got to put his word in our heart. And so our basis for obedience for Christ is, is, is not like, you know, his signs and wonders, but it's who he is. He is the Son of God. And I think this, this, this final part here, it, it makes me ask this question, is the gospel enough? Is Jesus enough? Does that compel our obedience that the more we fall in love with him, the more we know him, does it, is that enough for us or do we need that, that other thing? You know, do we need more power? Do we need more status? Do we need whatever it might be where it's just like, ah, I've just said Jesus plus. And it's a call, I think, to find contentment in him and his promises and to follow in his way. To hear his voice, to hear his word, 
and stand on that because Jesus is worthy. These other people that were like, look at what I can do. But Jesus is like, look what I've already done. And that's salvation. That's in him. And so we, we, we hold on to that. And Jesus reminds us later on in the chapter, he says this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so this passage, in a nutshell, is a call to faithful following in the present, to be on guard, to cling to Christ over everything else, and to be content in him and his promises. I'm going to invite the the team to come up as we close here. There's a lot to talk about in this passage. Again, like so many things happening. But I think the ultimate thing to, to, for us this morning, the thing that I really want us to walk away with is that the mark of faithfulness is watchfulness. Not for telling the future, but obedience in the presence. And if you remember, like, you know, thinking about that old school way of driving, you know, handwritten notes, <laughs> paper maps, you have to be aware so you don't miss the turn. I mean, thankfully, God is gracious, and so we can, we can do a little yui. And, and, you know, and as we repent and follow him, but he's looking for us to be watchful, to hear his voice, to see the signs, to walk in obedience. And I think that's the word for, for the church today is to be content in Christ and his words, not going after other things, but going after him.